0: Old Testament was nothing but a myth. I'd been told in my New Testament class that the resurrection of Jesus was not necessary. Uh, and so I knew, I knew that our churches, I, well I knew that our convention was struggling with liberal theology. I also had been confronted with it in the interview process with this church. At the time, they had a staff member who was a music director and youth director. Now they called her uh, a minister of music and youth. Uh, They had ordained a woman as a pastor. She and her husband had been in seminary with me and the fact that she was ordained as a pastor and would now be serving under my supervision was problem enough, but that wasn't the biggest problem that I encountered. I went to the church to meet the congregation and to answer questions that they had about my beliefs and about my administrative style and that woman and her husband both were there And they both asked questions in that meeting concerning uh, how I would resolve conflict and about they wanted to know my views on women in ministry and the ordination of women. The problem occurred when we closed the meeting. Uh, The chairman of the deacons called on that woman's husband to lead us in prayer. And that's when I realized I had a bigger problem than I even had ever thought. He began his prayer this way Dear Heavenly Father and Mother, I don't remember anything else he said. By the way, when I moved in in mid December 1988, uh, that minister of music and her husband had resigned and they had moved on. You know, what do you tell us that story for? Well, I tell you that story to call attention to this verse. Uh, It comes from what we we call the Lord's Prayer, but it really isn't the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is John 17. This is the model prayer. Uh, And last week, if you were here, you'll recall that I talked about how you couldn't understand the 10 Commandments unless you first understood the first commandment. You could not understand the other nine unless you got that first one and had a proper understanding of that. Well, in the same way, you cannot understand this pattern for prayer that is given by our Lord until you first understand the very first verse in this pattern. So, I want you to stand in honor and reverence of the reading of God's inspired, infallible, inerrant word and look at what he says. Because in verse 9, he begins by saying, In this manner, in this way. He never tells us, and I'll get to this in a minute, he never says that we're supposed to repeat the Lord's prayer. He says, In this manner, pray this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, now help us to understand what you meant. Uh, We have heard it all our lives. We have repeated it all our lives. We've memorized it and know it, but do we really understand it? So help us now to see exactly what it is you're trying to call our attention in this model prayer as we understand what it means to honor your name as holy. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, And that really is a better translation, by the way. We, we, We say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The better way to translate that would be to say, our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. That's what that means when we talk about hallowed be thy name. That's, that's an old English word that uh, nobody uses anymore. I don't, I don't think I've ever heard any of you say anything about hallowing anything. Uh, so we would say, our Father in heaven, may your name be honored as holy. I firmly believe that prayer ought to be the greatest passion of a Christian. You ever thought about all the things that the disciples could have asked Jesus for but didn't? Uh, Not one time uh, did Peter ever walk to Jesus and say, Hey, I wish you'd teach me that walking on the water trick thing that you do. I'd love to be able to do that. Didn't do it. James and John never took Jesus a a sea bass and a loaf of bread and said, uh, We're having a big family gathering this weekend. Can you help us out? Nobody ever went to Jesus and said, I'd really love to know how you took that water and turned it into wine because we're having a big gathering this weekend and it would be really nice if I could do that. Save me a bunch of money. Nobody ever went to Jesus and said, "Uh, could you teach us how to preach? But they came to Jesus and they said, will you teach us how to pray? in Luke chapter 11, verse one, which is Luke's account of the model prayer. That's what they say to him. Lord, would you please teach us how to pray? And so there are a lot of people today who believe that you ought to repeat the Lord's Prayer every time you get together. And there's certainly nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with, with saying the Lord's Prayer, but it never was intended to be something that you recite. It was intended to be a pattern that you follow. So when you look at this verse, I want you to notice that Jesus does not tell his disciples, now get this, Jesus does not tell his disciples where to pray. You can pray anytime, anywhere you want to pray. Jesus also did not tell the disciples the posture that they had to assume when they prayed. In other words, you can you can kneel when you pray, you can lay down when you pray, you can sit up, you can stand up, you can walk around while you pray. Jesus never talked about the where, nor did he talk about the kind of posture that you had to have. He didn't tell them how long they had to pray. He said, you pray in the morning, you pray in the afternoon, you pray in the evening. In fact, the Bible tells us that we ought to maintain an attitude of prayer at all times. Paul would say later on, pray without ceasing. So what Jesus has given us here is a pattern for praying. So Matthew 6, 9, you get the foundation for this prayer when you're reminded to whom you pray we learn immediately from the very first line who God is not. God is not your heavenly mother. He's your father, our father in heaven. Well, pastor, uh, does that really matter? Does that really matter? Well, as a matter of fact, I think it does matter. In Romeo and Juliet, Shakespeare said, what's in a name? That which is called a rose by any, other, by any other name would still smell as sweet. Now Shakespeare's basically saying the essence of something is not so much in its name, but it's in the product. Well, that may be true of things that you and I deal with on a daily basis, but that is not true in items of spiritual nature. In Psalm chapter 20, verse seven, the Bible says, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we will remember what? The name of the Lord our God. So in other words, the name of God reminds us who he is, it reminds us what he is like, and it, is, it enables us <clears throat> to completely trust in him. So in that very simple statement that Jesus makes to start off this pattern, our Father in heaven, may your name be uh, uh, honored as holy. A Couple of simple truths I want you to get from just that one line in that model of prayer. Number one, God is a personal father. God is a personal father. True prayer always begins with two very majestic words. Our Father. Those two words tell a great deal about the relationship that you and I have with God. Now back to my feminist enlightened friend. He believed that we should remove all reference in the scripture to the maleness of God. Uh, The National Council of Churches, by the way, agreed with him. Many churches have done this. Thankfully, Baptists have not, and uh, we won't as long as I still have breath. But a few years ago, the National Council of Churches issued a uh, alternative translation, they called it, to certain passages of scripture. They wanted to rid the Bible of male bias. And so in that translation of Scripture, God is no longer just God the Father. Now he is, as that uh, fellow prayed that night, he is our holy Father and our holy Mother. He's both. In that new translation, rather than being the Son of God, Jesus is called the Child of God. Rather than the son of man, Jesus referred to himself in Mark's gospel many times as the son of man. They took that out completely, and now they just referred to him as the human one. Rather than calling Jesus Lord, and Lord in the Greek language is a masculine term, we just call him sovereign one. For many years now, there has been an attempt by radical feminists and by liberal theologians to neuter God. And can I just say something? I, I, I refuse to be neutral on this. Uh, the Bible is clear. We are made in the image of God. He is not made in our image. We don't tell God who he is. He tells us who he is. And the way he has revealed himself to us is as father. The problem is that people normally associate maleness and femaleness simply in sexual terms. And that's wrong. The Bible says that God is sexless. He is neither male nor is he female. He is spirit according to the Scripture. So, when the Bible refers to God as He, it is simply referring to Him in a personal way. Listen carefully. The Bible doesn't say that God is like a Father. That's not what it says. It says God is our Father, that is His nature. That is who he is. It is a personal revelation that God gives to us and that God reveals about himself to us. And he says, I am father. But when he does that, it is also an intimate way of revealing himself to us. Jesus introduced a concept here in this First line of the pattern of praying, he introduces a concept here that was absolutely unheard of in the first century world. Nobody would ever have thought of referring to God as Father. In fact, in the Old Testament, there are only 14 times when God is referred to as Father. And every single time, all 14 times in the Old Testament, when it refers to God as Father, it's not referring to him as Father in a personal way, it is referring to him as Father of the nation of Israel. It's a national thing. But when you get to the New Testament, so you've got Abraham, you've got Moses, you've got David. The three greatest men in the Old Testament, not one of them ever called God Father in a personal way. They didn't. In the New Testament, 167 times just in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, 167 times in the Gospels, God is now referred to as Father. Over 60 times, and in every one of his prayers, Jesus always referred to God as Father, always. you beginning to get the picture? A reverent Jew would never call God Father, and yet Jesus uses a word that is an Aramaic word. It is the word Abba. When he referred to God, he called him Abba. Now, in America, we try to say, well, that's the name we would use for daddy. That's not true. Uh, That's not true because daddy is too flippant. This word Abba, though, is a word of great respect and honor that an Aramaic child would have used to refer to his father or her father. So wait a minute, preacher, are you suggesting, are you saying that the point of this is to teach us that we're supposed to come to God in the same way a little child would go to their father? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm trying to tell you. It's exactly what the New Testament teaches. Now do you understand why this verse is so key to understanding the pattern of praying? We have a personal relationship with God. We have an intimate relationship with God. Let me quickly add this. God not only is personal, but he's perfect. He's perfect. Those of us who are fathers, we are far from perfect. But when I pray, I am praying to a father who loves me, who desires the very best for me, and whose wisdom is the very best for me, and not only that, he has the power to deliver what is best for me. So it's not that I am comparing God, because some of you may sit out there and say, well, I had a terrible father, and when I think of father, and I have to call God father, it makes me, it triggers me. Well, let me just tell you something. You're comparing your daddy, you're you're comparing God to your father, and you're not supposed to do that you compare your father to God. And what you find out when you compare your father to God is what? He's not perfect. Your dad wasn't perfect. But your heavenly father is. He's perfect. Whatever he desires, whatever he wants, whatever his wisdom dictates, he has the power to deliver that. And so you know what that means? That means that you may have grown up in a terrible home and your father may have been a terrible human being, but you have a heavenly father who you can trust explicitly, 100%. He will never leave you. He will never desert you. He will never mistreat you. He will never do anything to you that is not for your own good. That's the difference. So God is personal Here's the second thing I want you to see in this first uh, line of the model prayer. Not only is God personal, God is powerful. God is powerful. God is not just our Father. What does he say next? Our Father in heaven. Our Father who art in heaven. Well, listen, preacher, I don't know a whole lot, but uh, I already had it figured out God was in heaven. Well, well, good, you're way ahead of the game. So why did he tell us that if we already knew that? Why did God tell us, or why did Jesus tell us that our Father was in heaven if we already knew that that's where he was? Well, he's trying to reveal something to us about God. He's revealing something very special to us about our Father. By telling us that our Father is in heaven, he has just told us that God is omniscient, That means he sees everything and he knows everything. Your heavenly father sees everything. He knows everything. God doesn't just know it all. God is all knowing. God is not just wise, he's all wise. Write this down, Psalm 139. Go back and read it. Psalm 139 reminds me that God not only can read my mind, but he knows what I'm gonna say before the words ever form on my lips or my tongue. O Lord, verses one to four. O Lord, you have searched me and known me You know my sitting down, you know my rising up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You comprehend my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, O Lord, but behold, you know it altogether. So when Jesus tells us that as we pray, our Father in heaven, we are praying to one who is omniscient. You're not gonna ever tell God something that he didn't know. You're not going to ever reveal anything to God. God's gonna reveal things to you because he is all-knowing, but he's also omniscient. He is omniscient, but he's also omnipresent. In other words, you can't go anywhere where God's not already there. Uh, Psalm 139 again, verse seven, where can I go? from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I go into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed and shield, behold, you're there. So what do you learn? You can run, but you can't hide. You can run from God, but you can't hide from God. He's everywhere. So he's omniscient, he's omnipresent. So when, it, when Jesus says, our Father who art in heaven... He is revealing to you that our Father knows everything. He is everywhere. And then he's revealing to us that he's omnipotent. Now, when people try to describe omnipotence, they will say something like this. There is absolutely nothing that God cannot do. That's not what that word means. And that's an incorrect statement. There are some things God cannot do. You see, it is totally absurd to say God can do anything because if he could do anything, he could be God and cease to be God at the same time. Well, he can't do that. God can't make a round square. You follow me? Uh, God is not able to be God and not be God. So when we say that God is omnipotent, here's what that means theologically. It means that God can do anything that does not violate his own nature. God can do anything that does not violate his character as it is revealed in scripture. And, and so what do you know what that means to me? That means that most of us, Most of us never truly understand the power of God. We don't understand the power. Listen to what Job said about creation, for example. In Job chapter 26, he's talking about God and says, he stretches the northern skies over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. Nothing. He wraps up the water in his clouds, yet the clouds do not burst beneath their weight. These are but the fringes of his ways. How faint is the word we hear of him who can understand his mighty thunder. You may have come in here today and think you've got it all under control. You may have come in here today and think you run your own life. You do whatever you wanna do. You live any way you want to live, but listen to this. Psalm 115, verse 3 says, Our Father, our God, is in heaven, and He does whatever He pleases. So when you pray, remember you're praying to the God of heaven, and He's all powerful. Here's the third thing. God is praiseworthy. He's personal, he's powerful, he's praiseworthy. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Or holy is your name, Uh, honor is your name. What does that mean? Our word holy means that the name of God is set apart. It is reverenced. It is respected. It is exalted. You and I cannot make the name of God any greater than it already is. We are simply recognizing that God's name is holy. I don't know if any of you have ever been to Moscow, but I'm told that if you go to Moscow to visit the tomb of Lenin, you are not allowed to speak while you're in line. In fact, they have soldiers every two to three feet. And if you even whisper while you're in line to see the tomb of Lenin, they will pull you out of line and throw you out. And they do that because they say that you must show utmost respect and reverence to the Russian leader. How much more How much more should you and I reverence the name of our God? It bothers me to no end to see how the name of God is disrespected in this nation. God is ridiculed. He's held up in contempt. He's used as a cuss word. He is treated disrespectfully. And the saddest thing of all is that I hear that from people who claim to be Christians. Can I just tell you something? If the only language you can come up with is vulgar language, shut up. If the only word you can find to use is a cuss word, keep your mouth shut. I wouldn't stand by and let somebody cuss Edna. Somebody started disrespecting my wife while I was standing there, I'd I'd have something to say about it. You wouldn't do it. And it ought to bother every one of us who claim the name of Christ when we hear the name of God misused. Whether it's by a stranger or a family member or a friend, it doesn't matter who does it. And listen, you say, well, I don't use God's name in vain. Oh, listen, do you, do you say, oh, God? That's misusing the name. Do you say, oh, OMG? You know what that means, right? Oh, my God. That's disrespectful to the name of God. We are to reverence his name and we're to reverence it not just through the way we talk, but I'm supposed to do it through the way I live. Let me illustrate it this way. The older I get, the more I see my daddy when I look in a mirror. I walked by a mirror not long ago, and I asked Edna, who is that old man that's moved in our house with us? I didn't remember taking him in. But I look down, sometimes I'll be doing something and I look down at my hands and I think, whoa, those aren't my hands, they're my daddy's hands. You ever done that? Or I'll make an expression and I think, oh, that looks just like what my daddy would have done. I've got some traits from my mama's side of the family as well and I, I didn't choose any of those. I didn't choose those traits. I didn't have any choice in that matter. That's just how I came into the world. Uh, because of who my parents were. If you claim to know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, then you have no choice but to reverence his name. You've got his blood in your life. When people see you, they ought to see Jesus. And so I reverence the name of God by the way I live Do you reveal the name of God by the books that you read, magazines that you look at? How about the kind of music that you listen to? Does that reveal uh, that you are a servant of the living God? How about the places where you go? How about the habits that you have? Do those things reveal the character and the nature of God? Do you by relationship Reveal the life, the name, and the character of the one that you claim to call Lord? I reveal the character of Stanley and Peggy Vaughn because I have their traits in my life. Well, if you claim to be a child of God, doesn't it make sense that you and I would reveal the character of our heavenly Father to the world? Of course it does. Of course it does. Dwight L. Moody gave an invitation in one of his crusades. A young man came forward and stood at the front. Moody uh, was drawn to him and walked over to him and he said, son, what caused you to come to Christ uh, tonight? A young man looked at Moody and said, sir, it wasn't so much the message that you preached, but uh, it was that I had a mother whose favorite verse in the Bible was this, I have been crucified with Christ and yet I no longer live, it is Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He looked at Moody and he said, my mother not only loved that verse, my mother lived that verse. And because she lived that verse, she prayed for me. And because she prayed for me, I'm coming to accept Jesus as my Lord tonight. There's an old story about how the Roman emperor was enjoying a great military victory. He was marching his troops through the streets of Rome with all of his captured trophies and all the prisoners marching behind And the emperor was marching with the troops. The streets were lined with people and legionnaires, tall soldiers, were standing along the parade route to make sure that the people didn't get out of place. As the emperor and all the soldiers came marching down the street, these uh, bodyguards would stand and keep the crowd from spilling over into the streets. At one point in the parade route, there was a little platform where the emperor's wife and family were sitting to watch as the emperor went by. On the platform with his mother was the emperor's youngest son, just a little boy. And as the emperor came by, the little boy jumped off the platform and he burrowed his way through the crowd, tried to dodge between the legs of one of those legionnaire soldiers who was standing there so he could run out in the road, meet his father's chariot. The soldier stopped and reached down and picked a little boy up by the nap of the neck and said, you can't do that. You can't run out there in that street. Don't you know who that is in that chariot? That's the emperor. You just can't run out there and run up to his chariot. Little boy looked at the soldier and sort of laughed, and he said, he may be your emperor, but he's my daddy. And they put him down and let him go. Listen, when the people who live at your house, when the people who see you at school When the people who see you at work, when you come down here and walk on this track, our employees here in this Family Life Center, when they see you, do they see and do they hear that you make the name of God holy? Does it reflect in your life? You see, the God who scooped up the oceans, the God who heaped up the mountains, the God who with one hand just flung the stars out into space and hung the planets in orbit as invited you. And he has invited me to call him father. And you can be one of his children. You can be one of his children this morning. All you have to do is repent of your sin. Confess him as Lord. Give your life to Jesus Christ. My Father in heaven, may your name be honored as holy.